0: Amen. If you will be seated and keep your place there in John chapter 2. So, I've told this story before, but I really like it, so I'm going to tell it again. I think it illustrates the passage that we're looking at. 1972, the University of Texas in Austin, Ray Kroc, who was the man who took McDonald's to a global phenomenon, was lecturing to business students, and afterwards at a lunch, he asked the students, what business do you think that I'm in? Well, of course, they answered hamburgers. His reply was, no, I'm not in the hamburger business. Anybody can make a better hamburger than McDonald's. Don't amen that. He said, but, he said, what they can't do is what I'm doing in real estate. My business is real estate because all of those stores are owned by my corporation and we have more real estate in the world ...than almost any other corporation. It helps to know what you're talking about, doesn't it? We're not in the burger business, we're in the real estate business. Well, I've titled the message today, it's not about the sauce, it's about the sign. Now, some people said to me as I discussed this with them over the week, what is sauce? It's an old term, he's on the sauce. It means drinking, liquor. It's not about the sauce... It's about the sign. But the sauce plays into the sign, right? So we're going to have to discuss that. And we're going to have to get into that. And we're not going to avoid the elephant in the room. And that's problematic for a bunch of Baptists, right? I mean, I'm just going to tell you, some of you already are sharpening your knives to kill me when this is over with. And some of you are ready to pop a can in the pew right now. If I'll give you the freedom to do it by the word of God. We don't need either extreme when it comes to this text. Put your knives away, put your cans away. Let's find the balance, all right? Let's find the balance. That's what we're going to do. Because what Christ is teaching us is something greater and more beautiful. Christ and his life was a mirror image of God the Father. All throughout the Gospel of John, he says, I've come to do the will of my Father. I've come to glorify my Father. You cannot read John's gospel without getting that message. Jesus is our prime example, is he not? And what Jesus does, we ought to try to emulate, should we not? I mean, we want to glorify Christ. And I want to tell you that as much as Jesus glorified and mirrored and reflected the Father, you and I do the same. 1 Corinthians 6.20, since you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Is it the job of every Christian to glorify God? Yes, in your body. In your body. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, that's what we want to talk about today as we look at Jesus, our ultimate example, who glorified the Father. And we want to answer the question how Christ demonstrates living for the glory of God. How does, in this passage, Christ demonstrate living for the glory of God? And therefore, how do we live for the glory of God following Christ? You ready? Number one, how Christ demonstrates the glory of God is, first of all, He glorifies God in celebration. In celebration, He glorifies God. And you and I are going to have opportunities in the celebrations of life, the ceremonies of life, to glorify God. We are going to be in positions where we are in those moments of celebration and ceremony and importance where we will have to decide how am I going to reflect and glorify God with my life and with my body. Now I want to just show you, as we read through the text, that Christ really faced three issues in this celebration. He he had to go to a place, at the place there was a problem, and he had a position. Places, problems, positions. And you are going to face the exact same thing as a Christian. You're going to be in places, there are going to be problems and you're gonna be faced with a position. Now, let's look at the place that Christ was at. Notice chapter one, chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. Now, that's the place. It's outside there in Galilee, and it is a wedding. I want you to notice what the Bible doesn't tell us about the wedding. We know nothing about the event itself. We do not know who the bride is, and we do not know who the groom is. We do not know why Jesus was invited, nor His disciples. They're newly minted disciples. Did they go just out of courtesy because Christ got an invitation? Is this family? We don't know. There are so many details about the wedding that's left out. A wedding is simply the setting of the story. What is given detail is the sauce at the wedding. There's more said about that than there is the wedding itself. But this was the place where Christ was at this celebration. And I want to just say a word about this wedding that Jesus is at and His mother. Verse 1, the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, Jesus was invited to the wedding with His disciples. They went. They went and they enjoyed life. They celebrated. And that's important. It's important to say to Baptist, because I'm going to tell you after over 25 years in ministry. I've had every possible celebration, ceremony, and moment of commemoration challenged to me biblically. It's almost like people just don't want to enjoy life, right? They say, well, would Jesus go to a party? He did, didn't he? Well, Jesus was so busy ministering to people, would he really take time out of his schedule to go to a wedding? Well, he did. And that's important for us. It's a very good example for us. It's okay to celebrate momentous moments of life and to enjoy them. And in going to them, you are glorifying God. Christ could do that. We could argue, didn't you have other things to do? You've only got three years before you go to the cross. Don't don't you need to get busy? But yet, this is how He gives seven days of life. A wedding ceremony like this lasted a week. And he took his disciples. And and that just speaks volumes to me because, again, I have had people that that have taken Scripture and they've said, why do you have that Christmas tree in your church? Don't you know the Bible says Christmas trees are evil? And they would give me an Old Testament verse. I've had people say, don't you know that that guy in red is evil? even wears red, and you take the letters of his name and the letters of Satan, and you can almost mix them together. True. I've had people say, don't you know Easter eggs is celebrating the God of Ishtar, and we're all going to be vomiting out evil if we do this with our children? I've had people talk to me about Fall Fest and trick-or-treating and Halloween and everything under the sun. I mean, they've got something for everything. Leprechauns are evil. You don't want to do St. Patrick's Day. Valentine, don't you know what? He was no saint. And I'm telling you, you can find a Christian on every corner who has a problem with every holiday except something patriotic. You can find a Christian on every corner who has a problem with every holiday except something patriotic, and then they're only happy if their political party is in power. And if their political party is in power... They're still moaning and groaning because Congress won't let anything get done. So you can find somebody who has a problem with everything when it comes to celebration, when it comes to life, when it comes to just living and enjoying. And I would say to you, Jesus took time out of his life to go to a wedding. Now, I know a wedding isn't a holiday, but it was to these people. It was a celebration, and he could have been doing other things. But notice what else, there were problems at this wedding. Chapter 2, verse 3, when the wine ran out, Uh uh-oh, well, pastor, you know that that's just grape juice, right? That is not true. Now I'm trying to be as academically honest with you as I can be. I could stand up here and lie to you and say that that's not true and that it was Welch's and they had catered this wedding, but that is not true. Now, you know it's not true because, first of all, when the master of the ceremony is brought the wine that Jesus transforms, he says, you've saved the best to last. And literally the Greek phrasing there is, while everybody's drunk. I mean, excessively drunk. Now, I know that's creating problems for we Baptists. How could Jesus be at a drunk party? But here he was in a problematic situation you would think, well, certainly Jesus got up and told the whole crowd, you folk ought not be drinking. And I'm going to turn this, this water into water, and y'all are going to drink all of it and sober up. Or I'm going to turn it into coffee, and y'all are going to drink it until you sober up. But that's not what he did. That's not what he did. You, you can't read that into the text and say, well, this is not real. Now, John MacArthur will tell you, well, they diluted the wine to one-third by adding water. So what? Beer is 4% alcohol, and people get drunk on that. It doesn't matter. You can dilute it all you want, and you can say it's full of water, but it's still there, and they still drank it, and if it's a low volume or a high volume, really is beyond the point. It was about 150 gallons of the stuff. You can get drunk on Dr Pepper if you drink 150 <laughs> gallons of that stuff. I guarantee you I've done it. You should have known me. You should have known me as a teenager. Anybody knew, don't give that kid a Dr Pepper. You give him too many, he'll be bouncing off the walls. So here was the problem, they ran out of wine, and the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." Now, why was she there? Many people say, well, she must have either been an aunt, aunt, how do we say that in the South? We say aunt. She was an aunt. But for all you hoity-toity people, aunt, okay, so the aunt was there, or the auntie. And maybe she was the auntie of the bride. We don't know. It doesn't say. Or maybe, as some people have said, she was, in ho- she was the hostess. She was the hostess with the mostess. And she had to make this whole thing work. And they had a mix-up. And they were out of wine. So that's the problem. Now the position of Christ is this. Verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now just so you don't misunderstand verse 4 the relationship between Jesus and His mother is changing. He didn't say mother, He addressed her formally, respectfully as ma'am or woman. Ma'am, what does this have to do between us? It's literally how that would read when translated. Ma'am, what does this have to do between us, you and me? You see, she was now having to realize that he is the Messiah. He is not your baby any longer. And the relationship is changing. But notice he did not tell her or rebuke her or say to her, why would you ask me to do that? The only thing he says is, you know that my hour has not yet come. I am going to be glorifying the Father. I am going to be an example to the world of the, the, the father of all I am the Christ but everything that has been laid out for me has been predetermined and it is not yet time for me to go to the cross it is not yet time for me to display myself but you are someone that I love woman what does this have to do between us and notice her response do whatever he tells you to do What a great response. That ought to be all of our responses. Now, here's where I want to land this first point. This was a celebration. Jesus was at the celebration. He was at the place. There was the problem of the wine, and He had a position. He was going to be Savior even over a loss of drink. Now, let me just curtail for a moment and say something to us about Alcohol in the Bible because it's pertinent in this point. It's prudent. It makes sense. The Bible never, now you got to hear me. You got to hear me. You got to listen. You got to stop thinking about going to Slim Chickens and you got to hear every word I say. The Bible never condemns drinking in moderation. In fact, to quote one uh, author, Sometimes it actually commends it. It commends it. Now what I did, I put together a little life application saying for you. And after every little saying on this first point, I put all the scripture in parentheses so that later you can go home, not right now, but later you can go home and you can research it yourself and you can say, okay, pastor, I want to know what this really says according to God's word. Now, the Bible never says all drinking is sin. If if you take that position, then you're going to have to explain about six Bible verses in context that are refuting what you are saying. But I'm going to tell you something else. The Bible absolutely, absolutely, hear me on this, condemns drunkenness. Absolutely. It commends certain aspects, and condemns drunkenness. And you know what the Bible tells you? You have freedom in Christ, but never use that freedom to cause somebody else to fall or to make yourself a failure. Now, I understand the complexity of this. My wife, and I got permission from her to share this, her father died of alcoholism, drunkenness. If you're sitting out there sharpening your knife and you're saying, Pastor, you don't know the devastation this brought on my family, I do. I do. My wife held her daddy's hand as he was dying of cirrhosis of the liver at the med and said to him, Daddy, who is going to walk me down the aisle? I understand the the gravity of how drunkenness destroys people. And I'll go a step farther. There have been times where I have had to go to people's homes and with the help of a deacon, drag a man out and take him to the hospital because he was so drunk, he almost stopped breathing. I've had to go to women's homes and stop their husband from beating on the door or their son from beating on the door to aggravate them because of drunkenness I understand this so if you're out there and you're saying do you really understand pastor yes yes but that's that, that's neither here nor there this is what scripture teaches okay scripture says in Christ you have freedom you say but oh pastor alcohol alcohols destroyed people other things you know haven't that's not true I've gone to many people's hospital beds who ate way too much fattening food, and they were having heart disease, and that is just as displeasing to God as the drunk in the hospital bed. Now, we don't want to talk about gluttony, do we? We want to talk about the guy who drinks. I've never drunk, but you've eaten catfish. I, I marked it down on Wednesday night who did and who didn't. And that is a bottom dweller, and according to the law of Moses... If we were under it, we wouldn't eat it, but we do, and it's fried. And people say, you want to bless the food, pastor? No, I want to ask forgiveness. Dear God, forgive me for eating what I'm about to eat. In Jesus' name, amen. My body is a temple, and I'm, I'm building a family life center right here. So I understand the gravity, but, but gluttony is bad. Let me say this. Let me, I'm trying to put this in perspective. Let me say this. There's some people here that would say, I have never drunk, but they've gossiped. Now, the young folk have this phrase, sipping tea, to talk about gossip. Give me the tea. Some of you have never had tequila, but you sure have sipped a whole lot of tea around here. And I'm telling you, your mouth has caused problems in this church and that school. Yeah, we may not drink tequila, but we sure are slurping down the tea, are we not? And so that is just as displeasing to God from you saying, "Well, I've never done it." Well, good for you. Maybe you need to hit the tequila and lay off the tea. Maybe that'd shut you up, put you to sleep and keep you from sinning. That was a joke. Everybody like, "I got my knife out right now. I'm going to kill you, pastor, when this is over with." That's a sin, too. So look, Christ was at this celebration because the Bible says You can eat food in moderation. You can do a lot of things in moderation. But drunkenness is condemned in Scripture. Let me lay it out for you how I did in this little life application. If you have your handout, I want you to fill this out. And I want you to check me on this. But this is the biblical position. It is not an either or. Many, many times in Scripture, it is either or to us. But it's not that way in the Bible. It's both and. You are to pray, give us this day our daily bread, but you are also to work, and if a man will not work, he will not eat. You see, it's not either or, it is both and. And when it comes to a subject like this, the sauce, I mean, we want to get up here and say, well, it was grape juice, and they never drank in the Bible, and we never drink, and that's the position of Baptists, and and I'm here to tell you, look, that is is not the position of Scripture. Now, here's the position of Scripture, and I've tried to lay this out as simply as I can. You following me? My freedom. That's the first blank. My freedom. What freedom? Psalm 104, Proverbs 31.6, Jeremiah 31.12. First Timothy five twenty three all talks about that freedom. My freedom, look what else, cannot cause others to fall. First Corinthians ten twenty three to thirty one, Romans fourteen twenty one. I cannot do anything in my freedom to cause you to fall. Pastor, do you drink? Here's what I'd tell you I'm free in Christ, but I don't do it because I don't want to cause anyone else to fall. I know in my position and the authority that I have bears a responsibility for what I am doing. And so though I have the freedom, I do not want to cause anyone to fall. And let me go a step further. The Bible also says it cannot cause you to become a failure. A failure. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That's the proverb that I quoted. So, so you can't justify drinking on Sunday morning and skipping church. You can't justify destroying your family because you're free in Christ. You see how this is both and? This is the balanced view. You have freedom. Don't cause anybody to fall. Don't create a failure for yourself. This is the most balanced biblical view of the subject there is. And why are we talking about this? Because Jesus was at a celebration that had wine. And you can't get around it. My wife said to me earlier this week, why don't you just skip that? (laughs) Nope. Nope. We're going to go through the Bible and we're going to tackle every bit of it exactly how it says. Well... Let's look at this. Let's look at this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So look, you can glorify God, maybe, possibly, with a glass of wine. Or you could glorify God with a Pepsi-Cola. And you can not bring glory to God with both of those things. And cause harm... And refute to come upon you and the name of the gospel. Folks, it takes discernment and wisdom. And we need to be wise. We need to be wise. Well, Jesus was at these places and had these problems and had this position. And you're going to be there as well. And you've got to say, how will my life glorify God? It's not about the sauce. It's about the sign that points to Him. Let's go to number two. Jesus glorified God in His compassion. In his compassion. So the next thing we see, and and this is even the bigger question, now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, the question now is, okay, why did he turn the water into wine? What kind of a sign was this? Very good questions. I think one of the reasons Jesus did this was compassion. Now that might sound odd to you, but let me explain it from a Jewish wedding ceremony perspective. So, notice in verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. So, in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees would wash their utensils and their hands, and they would put it in stone jars, not clay, because the clay would probably emit dirt, but the stone wouldn't. So they would put them in those stone jars, and it was just ceremonial washing. It would have a spout on the jar. They would wash their utensils. Jesus talked about that in Mark chapter 7. Well, these jars were there for the the ceremonial washing and purity that would have come at other times, but notice he takes those, and he says, now, bring me those water pots. That's about 150 to 180 gallons my goodness, that's a lot. That's a lot. Now, why would Christ bother doing this? Notice verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. Now, why to the brim? To show that nothing else was added. There's no room for anything else. Nobody slipped anything in. Now, notice what else. Verse 8, He said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. That's the groom. And said to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely or become drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. Here's why Jesus did this. Here's how this makes sense. In the Jewish wedding ceremony, it was phased. So, initially, a a couple would have an agreement with another couple. Our kids are going to get married. And they would enter into a contract of betrothal. And this betrothal period would last sometimes years So, for example, say a 13-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy after their bar mitzvah and their bat mitzvah had been brought together, there would be an agreement upon the parents, a betrothal. And they would say, now, in a few years, we're going to have a ceremony where we officially marry these two. But right now, they are in a legal engagement. And nothing could break that unless the woman was unfaithful. That's why Joseph wanted to put Mary away. They had this legal binding. They were engaged. And so he had the right to put her away. Now, what would happen when this took place is that the groom would pay the father of the bride a mohar. The mohar was a payment that the groom made to the bride's family to seal the contract. So, for example... Remember, Jacob served Laban for seven years. That was his mohar. And then when he didn't get the woman he wanted, he served for another seven years. He's making a payment. He's saying, I will work for this young lady. And you will legally agree that she is mine and nothing can stop that. You can't change your mind. This is the way it's going to be. Now, this mohar is important to the story because the groom's family had paid Now part of the agreement was that the bride's family would pay for the 7-day celebration. And the fact that the wine ran out, Mary says, we've run out of wine, why is that a big deal? We are in breach of contract. Now imagine if you're a caterer and you tell a family, I'm going to cater this meal for 500 people and at 100 people you run out of food. Is that a problem? Absolutely. You are under contract. In the same way, the bride's family was under contract. He had paid that family money for this whole thing to take place and to go off as intended. And in the middle of the feast, the bride's family had failed in their responsibility, and they possibly could be facing a legal lawsuit. Possibly, I mean, maybe they loved each other and would never do that. Maybe it wasn't that complicated, but that's why Mary comes and says, we've run out of wine, do whatever he tells you to do. We're under legal contract. The mohar has been paid, and we've got to fix this. And this is why Jesus changes the water into wine. Compassion. He is compassionate about this bride and her family, which again could have been a cousin. Remember, Mary could have been the aunt, the hostess. This could have been family, and out of compassion, Jesus didn't look at the situation and say, well, that's just too bad for you. You should have planned better. You should have done better. No, what does He do? He says, okay, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'll have compassion. I will save you. I will save you. This demonstrates the grace of God in an incredible way. God cares about the most minute things in our life. The fact that God would care about the wine running out shows the grace and the compassion of God, does it not? And so hear what He does. He performs the miracle. They take it to the Master. Why is that important? Because the master of the ceremonies is the legal binding initiator. He tastes it and says, this stuff is great. I can't believe you saved this. Well, we didn't save it. It was created. But you enjoy that. Hallelujah. The compassion and the grace of God saved the day. He cared and He came to their aid the life application, the heart of Christ, and really every Christian, is to love people and serve those in need. To love them and to serve those in need. I mean, we look at the example of Christ and how He reflects the glory of God, even in a moment of grace and compassion, and that should be our response as well. Now, let's go to number three. The last thing we see in this text that Christ did is he, he glorified God in the gospel with clarity, with Christ-centered clarity. He glorified God in the gospel with Christ-centered clarity. Now, we are told there in verse 11 that this is the first of His signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. That line is so important. Throughout John's gospel, eight different signs are recorded. Now, there were many others that are not recorded, When you read John's gospel, you'll read, well, he went here and did some signs and many people believed, but you're never told what the signs were. But then there are eight that are recorded. He takes bread and, you know, says, I'm the bread of life. He raises Lazarus and says, I'm the Lord of the living. He takes the wine and transforms it. Now, a sign in the gospels is meant to take a physical deed and point to spiritual truth. It's meant to take something physical and point to something spiritual. And Jesus would do these signs to prove to those who who, who could see and hear and believe, I am the Christ predicted in the Bible. How do we know you are the Christ predicted in the Bible? Well, number one, what did he tell John? Look at what you see. Look at what you hear. Look at what I've said and look at what I've done. Everything in my life has pointed to Christ-centered clarity. I'm pointing people to the Father. I'm telling them I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And this act of turning water into wine, you say, well, how would that turn anybody to God and Christ-centeredness. How would that turn anybody to see Jesus as glorified? But yet we read right here, this was the first of the signs that was physical, that pointed to the spiritual, and manifested His glory. And because of this, the disciples believed. Now I wanna say a word about that word believed. The Bible never tells us about the servants who witnessed the miracle. They may have gone to the wedding and never been convinced, said, well, that was a neat trick, I don't know what he did, but I don't know, they're all a bunch of drunks anyway, and gone home. Signs didn't convince people. Now sometimes they may have, but that wasn't the ultimate purpose was to convince. The ultimate purpose was to confirm to confirm what was already true. So somebody who knew their Bible, somebody who was willing to believe, willing to follow Jesus, willing to come and sit under this rabbi and learn, it simply confirmed in their heart, He is the Messiah. Now how would again wine confirm He's the Messiah? Well, when we go to the Old Testament, we are told in Jeremiah and Isaiah and even the Psalms, that when the Messiah comes and brings His kingdom to earth, He will bring the aged wine. Now, you don't believe me? Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, talking about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. When His kingdom comes, and He comes to rule and reign, listen to what Scripture says. On this mountain... Now, this is prophecy. This is what Jesus will do. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well refined. Jeremiah says off the mountains will come the dripping of the wine. Now, when Christ comes in his kingdom we are going to have a celebration. A celebration. The war will be over. Now, you're in the battle right now. You are behind the enemy lines right now. But one day, victory is going to be declared, and we are going to have a ticker tape parade like New York has never seen. And what Christ was communicating in turning the water into aged fine wine was the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms. I am the king who is coming to rule and reign. And in this moment, you get a foretaste of what I'll turn, death to life. Isn't that glorious? He will turn death to life. And so this pointed people to the promise. It pointed people to the promise and its fulfillment. It pointed people this is the Messiah. Now the devil will take anything good and he'll ruin it. The internet's good but the devil's ruined many many people's lives because of the internet. Atomic energy is great fuels our cities, powers our submarines, and yet that same nuclear energy could lay waste and devastation to multiple multiple continents in seven minutes. You can take anything that God has created for good and use it for evil. Now, what is the answer? Well, for those of you where somebody has taken the good of the vine and they've used it for evil, the answer is... They need Christ, and they need to keep walking with Christ, and they need to keep depending on the Holy Spirit, and the Lord provides a lot of great organizations and churches and people and love for those who want to walk out of that. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen people so gripped by those things, and Christ gives them the power to walk out of it. Our hope is Jesus, not abstinence. Did you know that? You can make all the laws in the world for Blue Sunday and Black Sunday and Red Friday and whatever you want. And that's not going to change anybody's heart. And the church can get up and say, you should never, ever, 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 ever do that. And that's not going to change anybody's heart. The Holy Spirit changes people's hearts. Be ye not drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the answer to any of that. And so don't let what God creates for good be legalistically avoided. You have the freedom, but you may not need to do it because it's going to cause other people to fall. And it may cause you to be a failure. So what do you do? Well, you you trust. Life application. The signs are meant to point us to faith and trust in Christ who is our Savior. John said, these things were done so that you might believe. You might believe in Jesus Christ. He is Lord and Savior. And for some of you today, it's starting that relationship with Him. And for others, it's continuing to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the lust of the flesh. It's a battle, is it not? But praise be to God. Would you pray with me? Musicians, you come. Father, we thank You for the Word It is not either or, it is both and. I pray that we will be wise and discerning in what we have heard. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give grace to us. Lord, I pray for the families that have been affected by drugs, alcohol, internet, so many other things, destroying lives. We know that is serious. And we want to stand upon the word that these things are deadly. So we pray for these families that are struggling with this. But Father, we also pray that we would not be Pharisees. That we would not be Pharisees who have it all figured out so neatly and tightly and legalistically that we have to ignore portions of Scripture and redefine it and re-examine it to make it fit our mold. We pray that we would be full of the freedom in Christ and full of wisdom to love our brother and sister so as to not make them fall. We pray all this in Christ Jesus' name, and we all said, Amen.